So, Professor Green, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. We've just published your new book in Swedish, Until the End of Time. It's called Till Tidens Slut in Swedish, which is actually the same title. (laughs) It's a wonderful book, I must say. But first I'd like to ask you, you cover a very very broad perspective uh, also out of cos- outside of cosmology and physics in this book how what made you want to do that well the unfolding of the universe really only has meaning when human beings are part of that story hmm. and of course it's human beings who have figured out the insights that we have to date that have allowed us to begin to tell that story. So it's vital that we see ourselves as part of the narrative. And when you say ourselves, we must focus in on the existence of life, the existence of consciousness, the things that conscious beings do, which Mm -hmm. is invent language, use language to tell stories. Among those stories, develop myths. Within those myths, yield religious systems, creative expression. And so all of that is just a natural part of the story. And that's why it's all within the telling that I go through in the book. And and as I understand it, you think that to be able to fully grasp cosmology, you need to take all these aspects into account. Is that right? Well, as a scientific account of cosmology, I would say, no, it's not as though Mm -hmm. cosmologists and physics departments are all thinking about myth and religion and storytelling (laughs) and so forth. But for for the individual who generally is drawn to cosmology to get some sense of where we come from and some sense of where we are going, including our story within the larger framework of cosmology adds an incredible amount of richness to one's understanding. Yeah, yeah, I, I see what you mean. Um, you cover a few areas that I like to go a little bit more into depth on. Uh, for example, the emergence of consciousness. Um, I, I don't know if you agree with me, but I seem to, I, I, I feel that there is some kind of growing interest in the philosophy of consciousness around the the world right now. First of all, do you agree that that, that's true? Is it a growing interest? Yeah, hugely so. There was a time not long ago when the word consciousness would just make people's eyes roll as if that's not a subject that we should be talking about. There are still people whose eyes roll (laughs) when you bring up consciousness, but there's generally a growing sense that the time is right to really think about those deep issues. Why do you think that is the case? Well, largely it's because of advances in the science of measuring the brain in neuroscience. Now that we can place probes right on the brain Mm. or deep brain probes within the brain and monitor the processes through those probes and through fMRI and other methodologies, we now have data about what the brain is doing. It's pretty crude data. It's at an early stage, it's rudimentary, but it has so far even allowed scientists to correlate various behaviors and and properties from the experiential standpoint with what's actually happening in the brain. I mean, you know, I did an interesting conversation myself yesterday with a variety of neuroscientists who are able to monitor brain function 
and determine within a limited vocabulary what word you're thinking or other brain scientists who've been able to stimulate the brain and enhance memory capacities. So this has gone beyond mere philosophy, but because the science has been developed, now philosophy can ground its thinking in data. And so the confluence of psychological, neuroscientific, and philosophical inquiries allows each of those to go further than ever before. And I think that's responsible for the renewed interest in asking these deep questions. That, yeah, that's a very very interesting analysis. Um, also, I I, I, I feel uh, I think I'm sensing also a growing interest in in more esoteric explanations like panpsychism, for example. Um, what, what's your opinion on panpsychism? If we start there, well, I think it's a worthy contender. It's worth thinking about again for those who perhaps aren't familiar with the terminology. It's the idea that consciousness doesn't only reside inside heads that have brains consciousness might reside right down at the level of the ingredients that make up brains even perhaps at the level of individual particles and if consciousness is in particles then when those particles make up a baseball bat (laughs) or you know um uh, any other inanimate object in the world that object might itself have some level of consciousness. It sounds very strange, mm-hmm. kind of kooky at some level, but when you think about it, if the particles themselves don't have any conscious qualities, if they're thoughtless, emotionless, passionless, you face a puzzle, which is how can a group of those particles come together and yield these inner worlds that you and I and everybody else always experiences? How could particles that have absolutely no element of consciousness yield conscious experiences. It Mm. seems almost an impossible gap between the ingredients and the experiences. And so this gap has led some philosophers to posit that maybe we're thinking about the particles wrong. Maybe Mm. the particles do have some proto-conscious quality. And then when you have a lot of the particles together, Each of their little individual contributions of a little consciousness yields the conscious experience that we have. So what do I think of it? I think it's a worthy contender. It's worth thinking about. I totally get the logic that leads some people to posit the possibility. I don't think that we're going to need to go quite that far. Mm. I do think in the end we will find consciousness as something that can emerge from ingredients when studied individually don't exhibit any consciousness at all. Mm, I see what you mean. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking, I've, I find two problems with panpsychism. The one is that it's a little bit of a God of the gaps argument. You know, we can't explain this, therefore there must be, you know, intrinsic in, in the material. Well, and, the other, and the other problem I have is that I don't really see it has any explanatory power, because even if you have that, thing in the atoms or whatever, then you have to explain still how that gives rise to consciousness in some in some aspects in humans, but not in 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 stones. Well, so but on that second point, I think that um, there are ideas of how that would go. I'm not saying that they are the right ideas, hmm. but there are people like uh, Giulio Tononi and Christoph Koch who imagine that if you have a collection of particles, you can measure in some sense 
the amount of integration of the information that those particles are able to exhibit and to process. And they even write down a mathematical formula for the degree of that integration. And they believe that brains, like human brains, have a high level of this number called phi, a high level of information integration, mm -hmm. whereas a baseball bat would have a very low level of information integration simply because the particles don't have the right organization. They're not linked together in the right manner. And so they would claim that the baseball bat does have a little bit of consciousness, <laughs> but it's so small that it doesn't really play any significant role, whereas creatures like us have a high level of information integration happening inside of our heads, and that yields conscious awareness. And it also allows for the possibility of other configurations of particles in which the value of that information integration is far greater than our own, which would be a kind of level of consciousness that we have never experienced. Mm. So it's kind of a continuum in this way of thinking about things from, you know, we're, we're perhaps partway along that continuum <laughs> with some entities, very little bit of consciousness and in principle, some entities with a lot more consciousness. Uh, I see what you mean. Uh, I mean, this leads, of course, to the question of free will. Uh, you know, my very good friend, Douglas Hofstadter, who you might know or be aware of, He, not not personally, but certainly I, of course, know his work. Yeah, and we, we've talked a lot about this, and, and he he doesn't believe in free will at all, basically. What's your take mm. on that? Yeah. Yeah, I don't believe in it either, at least in the conventional way that it's formulated, as we human beings or other conscious elements in the world being the ultimate authors of their actions. I think that's how many people think of a free will, you know. <laughs> Sorry about that, my... Uh, That was a very rookie mistake. I've got my phone on. I just turned it off. <laughs> no But, problem. you know, this idea, this idea that um, if I choose to move my right arm, I am the ultimate place where that action originated. I think that's the intuition that each of us has. And I don't think that's a coherent perspective. I don't see how that's possible from my view, which is shared by many scientists, which is There's nothing in the universe beyond the stuff, the physical ingredients, which are governed by physical law. We may not know those laws yet. Maybe what we have in hand and what we teach our students is an approximation to the fundamental laws. But we believe the universe is lawful. And if the universe is lawful, if it proceeds from moment to moment according to some mechanistic set of rules, Well, we human beings are nothing but large collections of particles, each of which is governed by those mechanistic set of rules. So where is there any opportunity for us to kind of do an end run around the rules to somehow intercede? It's not as though the rules progress from moment to moment that at some point they say, hey, particles, hang on a second. Let's wait for Brian to make a decision. And after Brian makes a decision, then the rules will come back in and govern what's happening. Good There's point. no evidence for, for anything like that. And so the traditional notion of freedom of the will that we are the place where the action originates does not seem to be coherent. Mm -hmm. No, that, that's, of course, a very good point. But what do we do then with uh, moral responsibility for our actions? Yeah, so it's a great question. And I got a two-part answer for that. Number one, I do think there's a kind of free will that we have. It's not the conventional one. And perhaps 
I like to call it freedom, not free will. It's not a willed kind of freedom. But what is the freedom I'm referring to? It's easily understood if you compare a, a human being to a rock. How do I differ from a rock? Mm. Well, the rock has a very limited set of behaviors, a very limited number of ways that it can respond to the world, right? Mm -hmm. Basically, it just sits there unless you kick it and then it will roll and sit someplace else. Mm. We human beings, because of the incredible organization of our particular ingredients, we have an incredible range of behaviors that we can exhibit in response to the world, right? We can talk, we can speak, we can run, we can jump, we can cogitate. All of that is because of this organization that we have and the rock doesn't. So the freedom I'm talking about is not freedom from the constraint of the physical laws. It's rather the freedom to behave in a wide range of different manners that are unavailable to most inanimate objects such as the rock. So that's the freedom. We have so, much thing, so many things that we are capable of doing. We don't freely choose those behaviors, but we do have this wide range of behaviors. So that's number one. There is a kind of freedom that we have. Number two, how do you go to responsibility, which is a question you ask. Hmm. Well, the way to think about responsibility is whether or not you are part of the causal chain of events that results in something happening. If you are an integral part of that chain of events, then you are an integral part of the responsibility for whatever takes place. And so from that point of view, it's almost algorithmic. I can figure out using that algorithm who or what is responsible for anything that happens in the world. Now, many people hear that they say, but wait, you know, what do you do about punishment? Right. How, how do you deal with punishment in a situation like that? You know, if, if, if I transgress, but it was because, you know, maybe I had some some brain malfunction, some brain tumor. Right. Should I should it be punished for that kind of a transgression? And my answer is, number one, you're certainly responsible for whatever you do in those circumstances. But the question of punishment comes down to one and only one consideration from my perspective, which is will the punishment have the capacity to shape future behaviors, your own or somebody else's. And in that way, can society through the tool of punishment mold behaviors in a manner that we consider better for the group? Because even in a world absent free will, particles can learn. Inanimate objects learn, right? Yeah. The Roomba in your house, it learns where furniture is, right? Your, your, your self-driving car through AI learns about how to deal with certain things in the environment. And so in the case of a, a brain tumor, of course you shouldn't be punished mm. because if the brain tumor is truly responsible for the behaviors and you remove it, then there's no course of punishment that should mold your behavior. We have solved the problem of your behavior. Mm. And so it's a very straightforward approach where it's consequentialism is the philosophical terminology. We should punish somebody only toward consequences of our punishment. Will it mold the behavior in a way that we deem relevant? And that's completely independent of free will. Nothing to do with free will. Mm, we, we can have compassion we can have compassion for someone's behavior if they transgress because we can say to ourselves how sad that their particles undertook that behavior. But still we need to punish if we believe that through that act we can mold the behavior of that collection of particles called a human being or somebody witnessing the punishment in order that their future behaviors align more closely with how society would like those behaviors to be. Mm. I see, I see. That's very interesting. Um, but, but if we 
still talk about consciousness and free will. Do, do you, because you believe that consciousness, as I understand you, is an emergent phenomena f- from the physics, uh, from the brain, does that mean that you also believe in conscious machines, that's, uh, that it's possible in the future? Yes, I do. I do. And that is a natural consequence of this point of view that there's nothing particularly special about this gloppy gray thing inside of our heads Mm. is the supposition. And if that's the case, then if those particles are appropriately arranged in any other device, an artificial device, a computer, a futuristic computer, then yes, I do think it's in principle possible for that system to have enough of the organization such that when it processes information there's an inner world yeah and that machine can report on that now it's virtually it's very hard i'm i was going to say virtually impossible but let me say very hard to ever test that idea because we don't even know how to test that idea among us human beings right i mean i look at you right now and I think you're a conscious being, <laughs> but I don't know, no. right? Inside of your head, maybe there's nothing going on. I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. It just means maybe the inner world that I'm experiencing is not happening inside of your head and you're just responding to the stimuli of the external world. Now, obviously, I don't, I don't think that's true based on experience and, and, and based on trying to understand other beings in the world around me, but I can't prove it. And when it comes to a machine, we'll be in the exact same circumstance. If the machine exhibits the kinds of behaviors that we are used to from a conscious being, you know, if we if we go into the park one day and there's one of these AI systems sitting on a bench, you know, deep in thought and looking really distraught and we speak to this AI system and the AI system says, I'm really depressed about the meaning of life. You know, I think, I think we'll, we'll, we'll come to the place where we'll say, yes, that, that machine is really having the same experiences that we do. Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I, I thought about it myself that I, definitely we will create machines that can simulate consciousness well enough so we can't distinguish it, distinguish it, it, it from real consciousness. That will happen before if they develop it truly it will happen before so we will never know when it actually turns yeah. over to the next level so to speak yeah yeah right. i've just thought about it but but do you, do you do you consider it a threat like some people do to human humanity i think i'm fundamentally optimistic mm-hmm. and maybe that's naive but my view is that it's not going to be an us versus them I think that's really where the terror and the fear comes from, mm-hmm. because we live in a world in which it is us versus them when it comes to human beings. So my level of optimism is certainly not borne out by the state of the world. But I can't help but think that we will get better at living in groups. We are pretty um, rough in our behaviors today, but I hope that will change. And when it comes to AI systems, I imagine it'll be more a blending mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, flesh and blood beings and then these artificial beings, it'll be more of a blending. So now some people would consider that a threat, but it's a different kind of threat. But I think that we're gonna merge with these artificial systems. It'll begin with memory implants or brain boosters of a variety of sorts. And then at some point 
there really won't even be a way of distinguishing between what we used to call flesh and blood and what we used to call artificial. We'll just merge together. And that's the vision that I imagine will happen. And I consider that enormously exciting. It may spell the end of the very, the original kind of flesh and blood human being that we're used to. But I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. It could be a new era of human awareness and human experience aided and guided and and partnering with these kinds of technological systems. Hmm. Interesting. Um, another field that you go into to some length is, of course, quantum physics. And um, I have a question about that. Do you think that we ever will have an intuitively understandable um, description of the quantum world? Well, there's two ways of going about addressing that. One is <clears throat> the Einstein approach, Einsteinian approach, which is to imagine that our current formulation of quantum mechanics is really provisional. Yeah. And that when we get a deeper understanding of quantum mechanics, a lot of the weird stuff that we have trouble pulling into our intuition will shed away mm. and the new description will be much closer to the kinds of things that we have an intuition for, much closer to sort of the classical ideas that came down to us through Newton and Maxwell and Einstein himself. And I, I don't see a lot of evidence for that yet, although some very smart people are working in that direction. So that's one possibility. Mm -hmm. The other possibility is, look, you know, where does our intuition comes from? It comes from experience and it comes from evolution by natural selection, selecting for those intuitions that have allowed us over the course of thousands, tens of thousands of generations to effectively navigate the world, right? There's value in knowing that when you throw a spear, the trajectory it's going mm. to follow, right? There's there's adaptive value in knowing that if an avalanche is rushing toward you, you should get yourself out of the way, right? These basic intuitions about the physical world have adaptive value, and that's why they've been selected by evolution and imprinted in our brains. Mm. With enough experience of the quantum world over a great enough period of time, you can certainly imagine that human intuition will expand, so that the things which human beings in the 21st century find deeply mysterious and completely counterintuitive, maybe by, I don't know, the 30th century or beyond, I don't know how long it would take, the human brain, because of a deep experience of quantum mechanics, might be able to embrace the ideas more fully. Now, where would that deep experience come from? I'm not sure. Maybe uh, quantum computers will somehow bring the phenomenon of quantum mechanics up to a scale that is more directly experienceable. Maybe some kind of virtual reality system mm -hmm. where people spend time in the quantum world in a virtual way. Maybe if you do that for with kids from a very young age, when by the time they get to third grade, they're like, oh, yeah, the Schrodinger equation. Yeah, the, the wave <laughs> function. Yeah, it's all, all completely intuitive. Yeah. You know, maybe that's a way of doing it. But but I do think that's the only way. If, if we don't go the Einstein route, if quantum mechanics is here in its current form to stay, it will take really a change in human experience, yeah. I think, to truly grasp these ideas at a, at a visceral level. Mm, that's very interesting. I understand from your book that you're not uh, not a believer of the little bit new age idea that consciousness is sort of affecting the experiment, right? 
that's not your pathway. Yeah, it is a new agey idea, but frankly, it's an old new agey idea. <laughs> okay. The new of new agey, I think, is misplaced. I mean, in the early days of quantum mechanics, that was a natural place that some of the pioneers went mm -hmm. because it seemed to be the case that if a conscious being was not looking at a system, the system had this weird quantum property of being, say, a particle located in one location and being located in another location at the same time. But when a conscious being looked, only one of those results was ever found, and therefore it seemed that consciousness was deeply part of the process. But from our 21st century vantage point, most physicists don't think that way any longer. The view is that a system like a particle, like an electron, that may initially, in some sense, be two locations at once. We understand what that means mathematically, but let me use that rough language for now. It's not that a conscious being needs to be part of the story to disambiguate and have a definite outcome. Rather, it's any environmental interaction. Mm. Any environmental interaction is enough to cause that disambiguation. So it could be an amoeba that was doing the looking. It could be a computer that's doing yeah. the looking. It could be a photon, even from the microwave background radiation left over from the Big Bang that hits the particle and disambiguates the state of that particle. So it does not seem to be the case that consciousness is vital to that. But I have to say, just to be complete, much as I said before that I don't know if you're a conscious being because I can't really check, it's very difficult to check what I'm saying because yeah. If you were to say to me, how do you know the electron is is at position one and not position two? I'd say, well, you know, the device measured it and found it there. And then you could say to me, well, how do you know that that's the output of the device? And I have to say, well, I looked. And then they'd say, you looked. Yeah. And therefore, your consciousness is part of the process. <laughs> and it only really happened when your consciousness undertook that action. Yeah. Very hard to argue against that because it's hard to get outside of your own consciousness. But there's no evidence at all that that perspective is right. I understand. Um, I just recently read Carlo Rovelli's little book, Helgoland. Uh, and if I understand him correctly, he, he seems to think that um, reality is in, sort, in, in some sort relational. It manifests itself depending on what kind of questions you ask, so to speak. He's not into consciousness interfering, but still he, he describes reality as relational. I'm not sure I understand what he means. Do you understand what he means? <laughs> I, I, I think I do. And... Again, I don't want to put any words in Carlo's mouth, but, but let me just focus in on my, my view, yeah. which is that it is certainly the case, as I, sort of, as I described, frankly, until the end of time, mm. that there are many levels at which you can describe reality. And those many levels can seem quite distinct. Sometimes they might even seem contradictory to each other, but they're not, right? So there's the reductionist level of description where you talk about the stuff at a most elemental level, the particles, electrons, quarks, neutrinos, and so forth, and the fundamental laws that govern them. And that's one description. It's a fine description. But it's kind of useless for certain other questions. So the chemist comes along and uses a different description to talk about collections of particles and atoms and molecules 
and develops a whole vocabulary and a whole other mathematical architecture that they use for those descriptions. And then the biologist comes along because the chemist description is not that useful to talk about cells and multicellular organisms. So the biologist comes along, invents a whole nother vocabulary and a whole nother description. And then, of course, the psychologists yeah. and the neuroscientists come along and they say, well, you know, when those cells are arranged in brains, those brains have experiences and we need to talk in the language of emotion mm -hmm. and volition and sensibility and so forth. It's a whole different language and a whole nother description. And, and, and then, you know, the cosmologist comes along, <laughs> skipping a few levels here and talks about, you know, the whole universe in terms of the stars and the galaxies and so forth and invents another mathematical apparatus and another language. And so in that sense, there are these many layers of reality. My view is that the charge of science is to make sure that those levels mesh that they all are, are coherent with each other. And that's a task that we're still really in the middle of right now. But it's only when you have all of the levels, all of the different descriptions of reality that you have the fullest picture, the fullest understanding. So in that sense, you could say there are many realities. Well, kind of, I'd rather say there, there are many descriptions of reality that are dependent on the questions of interest to you and the answers that you receive will be in the language relevant to whatever level you ask the question, mm. right? If I ask you about the motion of a ball in a game of baseball, you could go to the reductionist level, but it'd be pretty silly to give me the position of every single particle inside of the baseball. I don't know what I'd do with that mountain of data. I wouldn't even realize that it's a baseball at all. Rather, you should use a higher level description that gives us more insight. And similarly, if you talk about a human being and their emotions and their responses, could you use the reductionist account or the chemist account? Sure. And sometimes the chemical account is useful to understand perhaps maybe their chemical imbalances in the brain that yield certain kinds of experiences. But you need to simultaneously have the deeply human account of what's going on with the person who might be experiencing whatever elation or depression. And, and those descriptions, very different than the reductionist account, are more insightful. And the blending of the two can take you even further. Yeah, I see what you mean. Hmm. That's very interesting. Okay, uh, finally, just a few more things. Uh, I'd, la I'd like to ask you about something completely different now. Uh, you being uh, working in America in, in, in your science field, has, has your work or, or your work situation been affected by the quite controversial political development in, in, in America the last years? Well, certainly we rely upon government funding for the funds that we need to hire students and graduate students, postdocs, you know, to keep the machine of science running. Luckily, I'm a theorist, mm. so we're relatively inexpensive. We don't really have big <laughs> laboratories and Good things for of you. that sort. <laughs> Yeah, but but even but even so, we feel we feel the pinch of a political climate that doesn't value the kinds of things that we do in the way that many of us think that the government and society more generally should. I mean, we do live in a science-denying climate that is growing ever more vociferous, and it's dangerous, and it's disheartening, mm. and it can affect us right there at the bottom line. So it is vital 
that people recognize the the power of science not to not to intervene in ways that perhaps somebody would find unpleasant but rather to open up a world of possibility open up worlds that give us great insight into things that matter to us even at the level of of human health and medicine but all the way out to the farthest reaches of the cosmos and so look i mean part of the reason why i do what i do is to try to contribute to the trajectory heading back and even further in the direction in which it should go where people respect and and are thrilled by scientific insight not in a position to try to take a sledgehammer and and crush out its structure yeah so you mean that's why you write uh, popular science to sort of inspire in people part. Yeah. yeah yeah you know in part because look i mean my view is the insights of science are so wondrous and they're so enriching and they're so life-changing that it's sad that many people are turned off by science either in the classroom or because they belong to a group who identifies as the group that's anti-science and has an anti-science platform or rhetoric how sad how tragic and and i have gotten responses from from individuals who have been raised in such groups from such perspectives and they say how wonderful it is to break free of that and and some have credited reading my book or others for the first step in that journey so yeah that's an important part of what this is about but you know more generally i just want people to to have the same kind of excitement and and in interest that we scientists have when we look out at the universe because there's really nothing that's more thrilling. Mm, and that's wonderful. I think that's very, very important, really. You know, the the publishing house that I'm leading is only only doing um, nonfiction literature and a lot of science. So it's, that that's our that's why we do it as well. So I really share yeah, that yeah. with you. My last question to you, Professor Green, is that what what How did you develop your interest in science as a kid? What, what sort of stimulated oh. you from from the beginning? Well, it was certainly math when I was a real little kid. My dad, you know, who was a who was a high school dropout, but a musician, but deeply enthralled with ideas, mm. taught me the very basics of arithmetic and multiplication and so forth when I was a little kid. And I just was so entranced by the fact that these little rules could allow you to do things. And so my dad would sometimes set me these 30 digit by 30 digit numbers to multiply them. And I'd set up these big pieces of paper and tape them all together and I'd spend the weekend doing that kind of thing. So that world of, of numbers was, was certainly where it began. But later on, when I learned that math, that world of numbers wasn't just a game, but could be used to describe things in the external world and, and gain insight into perhaps how the universe began or how the universe might end or how structures like planets and stars and galaxies and black holes form. I mean, when I began to realize that math was the tool for learning about this glorious external world, then I was I was really hooked. <laughs> that's 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 wonderful. So so your advice to parents with kids is to give them small problems and turn mathematics into games or something like that. Well, I don't think you can give a prescription that's universal <laughs> because kids are so different. I mean, I have my own two kids of my own right now. And how old are I, they? I realize, I, you know, so, so what's that? How old are they? 
Oh, well, now my, now my kids are 16 and 14. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, through those years, I realized that <clears throat> you reach them in different ways. And I think that's the most important lesson that education has not fully absorbed for good reason. We don't have enough teachers to try to reach each kid in an individual yeah. manner. But one day through artificial systems, I think that we will. And we'll look back at this era. And by this era, I mean all the way back to the beginning of education, frankly, mm-hmm. as kind of a barbaric time in education because we have a one size fits all approach because we have to, right? Mm-hmm. It's very hard to cater to the individual. So I wouldn't say that the right way to reach every kid is to set them math games. For some kids, that will be mm-hmm. exciting. For some, it will be, oh, leave me alone and can turn them off from mathematics and science. So it's really following the lead of the child to allow their iconic DNA configuration (laughs) and their experiences to sort of lead you to find the things that fire them up most. Mm -hmm. And I don't think every kid is a math kid or should (laughs) be a math kid or should be a science kid, right? That's the beauty of the human species. We're all so different. And, and so you just sort of got to allow a kid's imagination and curiosity to roam and to help them find the thing that fires them up the most, whether it's math or physics or dance or literature or film <laughs> or, or, or cooking or fashion or whatever. And I think that's the most important thing. Let the kid find the thing that speaks to them. That's very true. Let's hope for a bright future for our kids, right? <laughs> Okay, Professor, Professor Green, thank you so much for being on our podcast. And um, I think this will be a success in Sweden. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thank you.